Every family has a story. Yours too, probably. Secrets large and small, journeys taken, bits of lives that need assembling like a jigsaw. Today, we hear the story of a family in Bury, and Annette Mackay's search for the remains of a secret sister that's taken her to a baby burial site in Ireland. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris. Welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Yoshi Herman is the editor of the Mill, the quality newspaper for Manchester, delivered by email. Yoshi, we have a deeply personal story on this week's episode, don't we, from a family in Greater Manchester. Yeah, this story has been in the works actually for almost a year now. When Danny first joined the Mill on staff just under a year ago, she went and interviewed this woman, Annette Mackay, and, you know, it's just one of those ones where it was an incredibly interesting interview, but we just never quite got the pieces together to publish it. So I'm absolutely delighted that we published it this week for male members and that Danny's coming on today to talk about it because it's a really moving, um, important story. And it's a nice example of one of those local stories that actually takes you inside a overseas thing, something in Ireland, like just like we did the, the German story and the Chinese story. Like this is a, a story that gives us a window into uh, something that's really important that's happened in another country and a kind of a really big scandal in Ireland over the past five or six years. Yeah, quite. We'll hear from Danny shortly. Firstly, let's uh, get you briefed, shall we, with everything else you need to know in Greater Manchester this week. And so you'll see, no doubt, the Plan B restrictions have come to an end in England. Yoshi, how are things shaping up in Greater Manchester? Well, the case rates have been falling for weeks now, as we know. The rate for Greater Manchester is lower than the national average, and it's falling by about 20% per week. So things are good on that front. Hospitalizations have been falling as well. And the critical care number, the number of COVID-19 patients in critical beds, that has never risen anywhere near the peak we last saw last February. So, you know, in February last year, we saw about 170 people at one time across Greater Manchester in critical care beds with COVID-19. And, you know, it's never gotten to even half that level during this Omicron wave. So that's another good bit of news. Those numbers are now falling, although the total number of people in hospital with COVID-19 in Greater Manchester is still pretty high. But as you just said, the guidance and the restrictions have gone away now. There is no work from home guidance in place. And I think that is a particularly important detail in a city like Manchester, where a lot of the economy is based on the trade that you get from people being in the city centre. We're quite a hospitality-heavy city in terms of our economy. We rely a lot on restaurants, bars, nightclubs, etc., doing well and having people come through them. It's going to be interesting to see whether this work from home guidance going away really results in a major return of office workers to city centre areas. That's a big question. I mean, I've got a bit of a sort of joke bet on with a, a leading sort of Manchester sort of city figure about whether it really will be a return to the pre-pandemic levels of footfall in the city centre or whether it'll take quite a while to get back to that because quite a few people now you know, they might work two days a week from home, even after this guidance has been dropped. They might do four days in the office, one day at home. 
You've got a lot of different working from home arrangements. I think a lot of companies have worked out that they can actually do a reasonably good job with a lot of remote work. We've got a charity who we're friends with in our corridor in, in the Royal Exchange where we have our office. Mm. They say they're now looking at whether they really need an office and whether they could do it all remotely. So for me, the really interesting thing in the next kind of couple of months is do we get the same numbers of people coming back into the city centre? Or as I sort of have always suspected, will it take quite a while in order for Manchester's growth to sort of make up for the shortfall in, in people coming in? It's going to be really interesting to see where that sort of culture shift goes and where the chips fall Yeah, on that, isn't it? Something we'll keep an eye on as well, for sure. Now, there are lots of profound questions that us humans have asked ourselves for generations. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? If a tree falls in a forest and nobody's around to hear it, does it make a sound? And should Manchester have an underground station? That one in particular has reared its head again this week, hasn't it, Yoshi? And a lot of this stems from the plans for HS2. These ideas have been around for ages, and one of the big sticking points between central government and Manchester in the last few years is about this underground station at Piccadilly. Should the HS2 line that comes into Manchester be given its own underground station under Piccadilly, or should it have an overground one that's sort of attached to the current station? Bev Craig, the new leader of Manchester City Council, and Andy Burnham, the mayor of GM, they have renewed these calls for an underground station they would like the government to invest the extra money that this would require. And the sort of economists or the data boffs at the Manchester City Council have worked out that there might be 14,000 jobs that were kind of could be created if it was underground and the land that was going to be used for the overground version of the approach into the station and, and, and the station itself could be used for development and or whatever else it could be used for. So... That's one dimension to this, I suppose. The other dimension is that having an underground station would mean that trains effectively don't have to turn around. It would be a through station, so trains go in at one end, come out of the other, um, and, and that makes for smoother journeys. We actually got a correction from a Mill reader about our coverage of this. We said that these debates go back to the 1970s. In fact, a Mill reader tweeted us, there were already discussions about a possible Manchester underground network in the first decade of the 20th century. So stand corrected and uh, we'll dig into the history of that. There you go. That, just, that tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? Uh, about, about how hotly contested that is and how far back it goes. Okay, we will indeed keep an eye on it. And elsewhere, Yoshi, as we sort of consider how life returns in what kind of form life returns to the city centre in Manchester there has been an announcement this week from the council about the Manchester Day Parade returning that's right the colourful parade of puppets music and dance groups will weave through the streets on the 19th of June reports the BBC this is the Manchester Day Parade it's been away for two years um, because of the pandemic and this year's one is, is going to be great and it's going to pay tribute to children and young people who've missed out on so much during the pandemic. My only question about the Manchester Day Parade is why is Daryl not hosting it? <laughs> Hashtag bring back Daryl. Yeah, I did. I hosted yeah. the uh, the Manchester Parade a couple of years ago, which actually was brilliant. It was really good fun. I kind of, I thought it was going to be a little bit yeah. monotonous, a bit sort of samey, because I, I was positioned in Albert Square, and my job was to sort of commentate on the floats as they came through. And I, I sort of thought it was going to be a little bit boring, really. And it was going to say, yeah. well, how many how many times can you say, oh, there's another wooden figure waving at the crowd? But actually, yeah. because it's so varied and diverse and there's so much colour and like and life in this parade it was endlessly entertaining really really brilliant if you've never been to a Manchester Day parade before you should be thrilled that it's back this year 
Love it. Can't wait. I'll go with you and hopefully people will uh, come up to you. Yeah. And, and I'll just, uh, I'll just cost for selfies. I'll just commentate anyway, even if yeah. nobody asks me or pays Perfect. me to do it. I'll just do Perfect. it. For- let's do a, let's do a live special episode from the parade. Yes. That's a great idea. Thank you for now, Yoshi. Thank you very much. Now, Annette Mackay has been searching for the remains of a secret sister. She only recently found she had. It's a search that's taken her from Barry to Ireland and to an old home for unmarried mothers and babies run by Catholic nuns, to an unofficial graveyard and to a septic tank around the back. The Mills' Danny Cole has been following this story and we'll speak to Danny shortly. Firstly, Annette also spoke to ITV about the story recently. I feel like the only person in the world whose relative is left unburied and uncared about in a septic tank. Who who would do that? Who would think that's appropriate or it's certainly not a religious thing to do? Annette Mackay speaking to ITV. The Mills' Danny Cole met with Annette and has followed her story. Danny, hi. Hello, how are you doing? I'm really well. This is a, gosh, it's a hard story to process really in lots of ways, isn't it? Mm -hmm. As we heard from Annette there, She's on this quest to find the remains of the sister that she never realised she had. But there is a seed at the back of her mind, isn't there, that she could, in fact, be out there in America. We'll come to that in a moment because it's a really important part of the story, isn't it? Firstly, introduce us to Annette, Danny, and her family and her mum. Yeah, so I first came across Annette when I was sort of doing some research and I found that she'd spoken about a lost sister. I was familiar with the Tune Baby scandal. I was quite shocked when it came to light, you know, a few years ago. And so I just reached out and she was really willing to share her story with me. And Annette's story is quite extraordinary. So she only found out she had a, a sort of a long lost secret sister when her mother was in her 70s and Annette was, you know, quite into adulthood. And the revelation came when her mum, Maggie, Maggie O'Connor, was holding her her grandchild and she was suddenly overcome with tears and made a reference to, oh, this is the baby that I lost. And Annette had always known that her mother had a difficult upbringing. So her mother, Maggie, was born in the mid-1920s in rural Ireland and Galway. She described the childhood as one of absolute poverty. So there were eight children. Her mother, Annie, died in childbirth and the father, Patrick, was serving in the British Army. So he would often be away for long, long stints of time. And Maggie's mother died when she was 12. And there's a period of time when the children are just left unattended. So Annette, describes you know there was a period of nine months where the children were just left to sort of fend for themselves and the only the only way they came to the attention of the authorities was when one of the brothers called Michael John caught a rabbit and they were trying to cook the rabbit in their sort of whitewashed cottage and they nearly burnt the cottage down and that was when the authorities stepped in and said oh these children need to be sort of taken care of so all the children were taken and split up. Um, Maggie was charged with the crime of being destitute, which Annette, you know, when she was relaying this to me, was, you know, was really shocking. Mm. So all the children were sort of split up and sent to these industrial schools, which were sort of run by religious orders. So Maggie was sent to St Anne's Industrial School, which was at Lenaboy Castle. And Annette was telling me, you know, she was abused, she was beaten. And Maggie would work there. She worked there from 12 until the age of about 16. And she actually stayed on working in the kitchens of this industrial school to help her two sisters who were also sent there. And Annette described 
her mother telling her that she would collapse the nun scraps in sort of plates and pots and she would push them out the window of the kitchen so her sisters could sort of lick the scraps because they were so hungry. And then Maggie's time ended at Lenaboy Castle when she was raped by a male caretaker. Um, the man never obviously faced prosecution and, you know, as soon as it was apparent she was pregnant, she was sort of spirited away to tune mother and baby home where she gave birth and then after she gave birth, she was actually taken to another another home without her baby. And at some point, there's a story Annette recounts, you know, her mum's pegging out this washing at this other, other home and a nun comes out and says, that child of your sin is dead, leave the home. Wow, and that, Maggie, that child of your sin mm, is dead, mm, leave the home. Leave the home. So Maggie <sighs> describes to Annette that she was basically put on the road I think at some point she moved to Belfast in Northern Ireland before eventually resettling in Bury, which is where Annette's story begins. Yeah, goodness me. I mean, that is really, I mean, that, that is, I mean, it's tragic, it's infuriating, it's, it's all of those uh, mm. emotions, isn't it? That, mm. that, that Maggie should have to go through that and then Mary Margaret, her mm. infant child, a six-month-old child, dies. Although at least that's what, Maggie was told, mm. and that is what is believed to have happened. And institutions like this one played a really important role in lots of family stories, didn't they, Danny? Mm. As came to light in the, the last couple of years. This is a BBC News report from a few years ago that reflects that. The head of the Catholic Church in Ireland has apologised unreservedly to tens of thousands of women and children, the survivors of homes for unmarried mothers and babies, often run by the church, after an inquiry revealed around 9,000 children died over the decades. At one institution in County Galway, almost 800 died, and it's thought many of them were buried in a sewage system. And as you hear in that report, Danny, this particular institution that Maggie was at, nearly 800 babies died. Mm. So I suppose this is also quite an extraordinary story, but this discovery of all these babies is actually down to the work of an amateur historian called Catherine Corliss. And Catherine grew up in Tume and was aware of the home. And for people living in that town, you know, the, the home was sort of used as a threat to children who were misbehaving, saying, so if you don't behave, you know, you'll get sent to the home. And um, there was a really excellent article written where sort of she remembers the home babies as they were referred to being, you know, sickly and, you know, quite neglected. So Catherine grew up and she always wondered about the home. And then she decided to have, you know, to investigate. And she found that actually nearly 800 children were missing their burial records. So she actually published an article in 2012 called The Home, which highlighted the high infant mortality rate in the Tune Baby Home and sort of pointed out the conditions and sort of actually campaigned to have a, a plaque erected or in memorial of these children. So at this point, nobody actually suspected that these children were buried in a sewage tank. You know, Catherine Corliss always said her theory was there was an unmarked, unofficial graveyard somewhere. It wasn't until 2014 that her story was picked up by the Irish Daily Mail that actually put the claim that, you know, there were fears there was a mass graveyard of babies in a sewage tank. So after this, the story went, you know, obviously it went very big. Mm. And then after those allegations, you know, that was when the Irish government started investigating and sort of, you know, 
issuing a commission and then I suppose that was when the story really takes off. Goodness me. And that commission, that investigation happened, didn't it? And we also heard from the Irish Taoiseach at the time, Enda Kenny, who spoke about these houses in 2017. A tomb is not just a burial ground. It's a social and cultural sepulchre. That's what it is. Because as a society, uh, in the so-called good old days, we did not just hide away the dead bodies of tiny human beings. We dug deep and we dug deeper still to bury our compassion, to bury our mercy, to bury our humanity itself. We gave them up maybe to spare them the savagery of gossip, the wink and the elbow language of delight in which the holier than those were particularly fluent. Are we trafficked them? Are we starved them? Are we neglected them? Are we denied them to the point of their disappearance? from our hearts and from our sight, from our country, and in the case of Tume, and possibly other places, from life itself. Former Irish Taoiseach Enda Kenny speaking about these houses. So take us back to Berry, Danny, and to Annette, and her search for her sister so far. Mm. So since the revelation that she had a secret sister, nobody at this point had you know, any inkling that there was a mass grave in Tume. Maggie made the statement in 1996. And then around 2006, Annette starts an application on behalf of her mother to the redress board. So the redress board was set up in 2002. And it was basically, you know, reparations for people who had been through these industrial schools and had experienced abuse. So they were sort of entitled to monetary compensation. And as part of this, Annette, was given a death certificate. So a solicitor in Manchester found the death certificate for Mary Margaret. And on the death certificate, the place of death was Tume. And then fast forward a few years to these really shocking allegations and these sort of findings. Annette sort of put two and two together. And the realisation that actually, if Mary Margaret was one of these babies born in this Tume home, and people were saying there was a mass grave at Tume and they couldn't find their burial records, then she thought, oh my gosh, my sister must be one of these. And sadly, Maggie died in 2016. So Maggie never really knew where her baby was, where her firstborn daughter was buried. Annette made the sort of the vow to find out the answer and to sort of fight for justice on behalf of Maggie and Mary Margaret. So since then, you know, Annette's been campaigning. She's part of the Tume Mothers and Babies group. So in 2018, she actually travelled to Ireland to coincide with the Pope's visit. You know, she was there with a vigil and she read out every single name of every child that was missing its burial place. So she read out 796 names at the vigil, which was obviously very, very powerful. Mm. Yeah, wow. And we mentioned earlier, Danny, that there is a seed, isn't there, at the back of Annette's mind that maybe her sister didn't die and isn't buried in that unofficial graveyard in Ireland. Where does that come from? So a practice among some of these mother and baby homes in Ireland was the falsifying of death records so that children could be illegally adopted and taken to places like America. So for Annette, she's taken DNA samples. So for for sites like Ancestry.com, so these are sites where you take a DNA test and you upload the results to the internet and it's put on a database. And if there are any matches, you're notified. So far, she says she hasn't had any matches, but she says, you know, there could be a possibility that Mary Margaret is a woman, you know, well into her 70s, 80s, who's just lived a life completely unaware that she is the daughter of Maggie O'Connor and she's got, you know, a sister and she's got a whole other family in Ireland and the UK. So this is part of 
the reason why the full exhumation and identification of the remains at the tomb site is so important to Annette and all the other families because she says all she would need is a small fragment of bone just to have that DNA match and just to put those sort of fears, those questions to bed since the discovery of the site. So in 2016, archaeologists did a partial excavation of the site Mm. and they found that all the remains there were of children. So they ranged from premature babies to toddlers aged three years old and in that site they actually found a child's blue shoe so that was part of the discovery but since 2016 the Irish government's been sort of dragging its feet so Annette and other families have understandably been quite frustrated and angry at the progress that's being made and last year the commission issued its final report into the mother and baby homes in Ireland and the findings found that you know 9,000 children died in these homes 9,000? 9,000 children died in these homes. And, you know, I read the report into the tomb mother and baby home. And, you know, a 1947 inspection, you know, described the children there as being emaciated, wasted, delicate, pot-bellied. And, you know, a high proportion of these children died from diseases and conditions that today, you know, are treatable and preventable. But at the time, they were highly infectious. So these were conditions such as whooping cough, meningitis. I think one child died of laryngitis. And in the case of Mary Margaret, you know, her death is recorded as um, cardiac failure. So for an infant, you know, six months old, whooping cough would have just been really a severe toll on such such a small body. So mm. that was ultimately the cause of her death. Gosh, blimey, God. It's a heck of a story, isn't it? Mm. But it's got a, a distance to run as well, Danny. How is Annette coping? How is she finding this deeply personal and no doubt difficult journey that she's on? Mm. So I think by the time I reached out to Annette, she'd spoken to other, you know, news news outlets. You know, she'd spoken to ITV. I think she'd spoken to the Mirror as well. It was a story that she'd spoken of time and time again, but. I don't think it ever lost its emotional impact. You know, she sounded very despondent, but you could tell there was a sort of undercurrent of anger and sort of frustration, you know, because even though you recall something time and time again, it feels quite rehearsed, but at the same time, it just never loses its emotional toll. Mm. So when I spoke to her, you know, you could tell she was still clearly incredibly angry and incredibly upset, even though I suppose at this point it's sort of tiring I suppose it must be incredibly tiring just to try and fight for something that you really desperately want to to know and yet at the same time you know you're faced with you know logistical uh, bureaucratic Mm. barriers Mm. Um, so this year 2022 is the year that the children's minister has promised that there will be a full exhumation of of the site and people can identify, you know, the remains and have closure. But when I spoke to Annette over the phone recently, you know, she was very doubtful. Um, She was very doubtful, but she said, you know, we'll we'll just have to see. Right, I see. You mentioned the the vigil that took place in 2018 and Annette and some of the other family members reading the names of those children lost. We should end on that because it's incredibly powerful. That's... My sister, Mary Margaret O'Connor, six six months when she died. Thomas McDonough, four months. Elizabeth Murphy, four months. James Murray, four weeks. Martin McGuinness, six months. Bridget Madden, one month. Bridget McTeague, three months. James Muldoon, four months. Margaret McNamee, six months. Patrick O'Malley, one year. James Murray, six weeks. Peter McNamara, 
Seven weeks. James Mulryan, one month. Mary Murphy, two months. Hubert McLaughlin, four months. Mary Maloney, 14 weeks. Joseph McWilliam, four weeks. Okay, Yoshi, take us into the Mill Newsroom, my friend. What's happening this week? Well, what's happening is we're launching a new type of Thursday newsletter for our members, which is a kind of a bit more of a magazine-style thing with lovely photos, little mini features we haven't done before. So instead of having one long read, which is what members get on Tuesdays and what everyone gets on, on the weekend, we're trying to break up our writing a bit and, and do something a bit different. One new feature that I really like is a, a column called At Home With The Mill. So we'll be going into people's houses. Danny will be photographing them in front of their favourite bookcase or at their desk or in their living room. And we'll kind of briefly interview them about their home or their neighbourhood or what connection they have to their study or something to do with their house and, and why they're proud of it. And it will give readers a lovely like little weekly insight into their fellow readers' homes. And then sometimes there'll be the odd famous person or someone who's uh, got an album out or a book out or something like that. I think it'll be a really nice little, almost like FT weekend style feature in our Thursday members uh, newsletters. Lovely. Okay. Look forward to that. We can come to your home. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've got to tidy up then. Uh, and how about a nod for the weekend then, Yoshi? Uh, what's going on? What should people be doing in and around Greater Manchester? On Saturday, I'm going to Home's big exhibition, this kind of enormous 400 artist exhibition. In 2019, they had the first Manchester Open exhibition, which celebrates the talents of GM residents. So all the pictures, paintings and other artworks are by GM residents. It starts this week, it runs until the 27th of March, and you can book a slot online for free. I'll be along there this weekend. Join me. Good stuff. My plan for the weekend is a beer and vegan food tasting session that's happening on Saturday at Seven Brothers Brewery in Salford. They're going to pair together some vegan beer and some vegan food and non-vegan beer and vegan food as well. So a lovely way to wrap up Veganuary, if that's been something that you've been trying at Seven Brothers over the weekend. You can find more on that in the newsletter. Manchestermill.co.uk is how you subscribe. Yoshi, for now, thank you. Danny, thanks as ever as well. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget to hit like follow or subscribe you'll get a new edition in your podcast feed every week as i explained to my grandparents this weekend who still haven't figured that out although i did get a text from grandma earlier actually and i will read this to you she says we've now contributed to the mill you'll be pleased to know granddad has put it on his card and we will share it she says Uh, love it love it love it please pass on my best i will they're in Um, don't forget uh, the mill newsletter is full of news and events and deep dives into fascinating stories portraits of the city and its people you can get that direct to your inbox by subscribing Manchestermill.co.uk